Hello, welcome to the Rusty Nile podcast, a monthly podcast that features readings of new writing by me, Niall O'Sullivan. I think I've got quite a lot to get through this week. I've pretty much stuck to my my schedule for trying to publish two posts a week. So if you want to read these, any of these, they're all on the Rusty Nile. And I'm just doing everything on the Substack now. I have no interest in bringing out another book of poetry. I don't really have that much interest in gigs and I don't have a lot of interest in sending to magazines. Um, I don't think necessarily this approach is great for my career as a poet, but um, if you have followed my career as a poet, then um, you really should have been doing better things of your life um, because cause, uh, there's not really much to follow. But anyway, I still feel the need to create. I still feel the need to share. But I don't feel the need to schmooze. I don't really feel the need to um, be ahead of my contemporaries, to be the big star. I, I really just love writing and I love reading my stuff out and I love sharing it. And so if you want to, if you're one, one of a few individuals that actually wants to read and listen to this, I am extremely grateful because that ultimately makes the whole thing a little bit less frustrating but I have to be honest um, before the pleasure I used to get from all this was the pleasure of an audience and I'm sure actually if you stuck me in front of an audience and I'd have that big applause from an audience then um, I'm sure I'd love it again um, but I but I, I I kind of get my pleasure from just making stuff you know especially from finishing the pleasure seems to come from the moment when I might have an idea to write something or maybe when I sit down and I don't have an idea and I start writing and then something takes shape and that becomes very pleasant. The state of flow that accompanies writing is really lovely and pleasant for me. And then sometimes just completion and seeing that I have made something and not being in to see entirely objectively whether it's sort of something that might appeal to other people or not. But just that feeling of, oh, I, I made that is really lovely too. And then I post it online. Now, I don't get the equivalent of the audience. You know, I don't really... I mean, I, maybe I would if, if lots of people clicked like or shared it or whatever or said, this is really good. Maybe I would get that pleasure. But my practice is not necessarily based on that pleasure. Whereas when I used to be more of a spoken word poet, I would definitely write poems that would have that little pop moment. You know, that 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 in wrestling, there's something called a cheap pop when the wrestler kind of goes, here I am in Ohio. And everyone goes, yeah, we're from Ohio. And American comedians do it quite a lot as well. So I knew how to write things into the poems that I knew that were for the audience, the live audience at the end of those poems. And then when I became less of a spoken word poet, even though I'm still interested in live poetry and how poetry sounds and just in talking, um, I, I didn't have to worry so much about writing those things that that audience might like at the very end. Um, so I'm sure there's ways that literary poets do this as well. I bet they, they some literary poets blatantly write this thinking the prize committees will like this particular thing. Um, and I also know poets who are really good, who became kind of frustrated and miserable because the thing that they created was the thing that they really wanted to create. But it was kind of like it was a little bit too much for the prize people. And even though they were really happy with their creation, they have a little moment of heartbreak a little bit further down the line because the prize people didn't get it, you know, um, and they can feel a little bit bitter about that. And I understand. I, I, I don't I get I feel bitter about all kinds of things. So I'm actually sometimes some people sometimes say you're just bitter. And I don't because I'm like, yeah, I get that. I get that feeling. I get resentment. Don't worry about it. Anyway, um, God, that was a bit, bit of a spew, wasn't it? So that was just me just justifying what I'm doing at the moment and why I'm really not interested in my previous avenues of creating and sharing my work. Because sometimes the final thing, if you are thinking I want prizes, I want to be popular, I want people to take photographs of my poem and share it with thousands of people on Instagram, then I think... Um, as soon as any form of clout, and we'll return to this point at the very end, if, as soon as any form of clout becomes involved in this, that will affect the work. And maybe that's the work you want to create. In that case, you're fine. But if you're more curious in other artistic directions and avenues, then I think that last bit will water it down. So that's one reason why I'm doing this or one reason why I'm justifying to myself that I'm still writing after my career has gone into the dustbin. So... I'm going to go right back to the beginning of the month. Well, sort of the beginning of the month. I had a bit of a gap. So on the 9th of September, so I think that week I did only post one thing. Um, but that was the week in which um, Queen Elizabeth died. 
And so it was quite hard to write stuff in the sense that as soon as you turned on the TV, it was just blanket blanket coverage of morning. And being that morning is quite a hard thing, not blanket coverage of morning, the actual time, that would be great. Could you imagine if it's just turned on the news and someone was just saying, and the sun is just... Uh, just coming up right now i think we can we can we get some feel i mean we've had the weather forecast but now when we're just looking at the sky and there is a kind of rosy hue just appearing right there it was a kind of a more of a cyan earlier but now we really can see that that rosy hue creeping in we're going to go to our um, morning correspondent now how do you feel about it in my ideal dictatorship that's how the, the news would be every morning so there was blanket coverage of morning m o u r n i n g and um and and it's so because of that as soon as you let any of that in be it social media or traditional media that's just gonna be what's in your head and and maybe if you are trying to think along other creative avenues it's quite difficult to do that so i did kind of have to write about it but i wrote about it um in hopefully as indirect and surreal a way as i possibly could um i think this was written on the day that the news was coming through and um and there was weird stuff there's one thing i'll talk about later when they went to a correspondent because royal correspondents they might as well be reading tea leaves i mean a lot of them at least if you went to a historian who knew kind of really good details about the entire history of the monarchy they'd be quite interesting to listen to even if it was an old racist like david starkey but um it's not it's just a particular kind of journalistic grift where people just make stuff up and I don't know, give backhanders to servants and stuff for sort of little facts. But the most ridiculous thing I heard that day was one correspondent in Windsor saying, um, news is beginning to trickle through in Windsor. It's like, I've lived in Windsor because I grew up in Slough and after sort of finishing uni, I didn't want to go back there. So I thought I'd, it'd be nice going to Windsor, but no, don't live in Windsor if you're working class. It's a stupid thing to do. So anyway, I lived in the Young Women's Christian Association, but I, I won't go any further than that. Um... But the idea that news was trickling through in Windsor, like like they don't have TV or internet, it was just basically just some absolute rubbish that the that it was just bad poetry that the you know which royal correspondents uh, uh, excel at that the royal correspondents thought would be just something really good because it was raining in the background and therefore there would be some poetic stuff and and everyone would share that particular point. I don't know. This one's called Rain Live Blog because it was raining a lot that day, the day after. And also it had, a, we'd be, I think we were still at the other end of a long heat wave. So it was one of the first times that we really had a few days of rain and finally we were getting some colour back to the grass and stuff. I should have written about that, shouldn't I? Okay. Rain Live Blog. The real story, of course, is the rain. It's shift from catharsis to ordeal. The lawns remember their plushness, the reservoirs draw their stores, and sewage pipes retch into the sea. It rained. A queen died, and it rained some more. The rain had nothing clever to say about it. Black dress, black tie, black digital mastheads. The Anglosphere switched to night mode, and I switched off the Anglosphere to listen to the rain from my messy little flat. I could feel content in breathing my last with the rain blasting the windows, the blocked guttering funneling it into a kind of waterfall, not quite a full-on Roy Batty tears in rain death, just the meagre trickle of tears in a messy dark room within an all-consuming deluge. All those 90s action flicks with heavy rain in the climactic scene, Van Damme impales Dolph Lundgren onto a hay harvester. They will meet again in a non-linear sequel. The reporter says that the news is beginning to trickle through in Windsor. Windsor famously has no internet, radio or television. They enter leaky hovels and scan the trickles for epochal happenings. The reporter could have told them, but that would have breached an unspoken ethics, like rescuing a lost baby penguin. I apologise for the harm that my previous comments may have caused. I was speaking through the rain, because of the rain, and to the rain. I sometimes forget that I live in a rainy little island. My parents hopped over from the rainy little island next door. The history I was taught followed the trajectories of a few special raindrops, 
with barely a word spoken about the storm. So you can see what I was trying there. I kind of wrote about the rain instead. And when monarchy crept in to this thing about the rain, I, I let it. And I, I, that's often, if there is a big event happening, I don't try and block out the big, if I'm writing, I don't try and block out the big event, but I look at something that's a bit more local to me. And I think if a big event creeps in, then it's much more interesting to see how the big event creeps into the intimate details of my life and my memories rather than me tackling the big event head on. Um, hopefully, and I wasn't in the mood to be too, too disrespectful about the monarchy as well when I wrote it. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a monarchist. But, you know, I, it's almost like a religion for some people. And I these days I don't go out of my way to offend people's religion. So sometimes during in the midst of an event such as that, I try to be respectful even when I'm being critical. OK, um, I stuck with the idea of the rain um, because one of my daughters is absolutely terrified of um, snails and slugs. And the name of that, that uh phobia is molluscophobia so this is my um molluscophobia high boon a high boon or a high boon is normally a kind of a passage of prose followed by a single haiku so i've written one of my monoku one-line haikus okay molluscophobia a high boon my youngest is terrified of snails and slugs so if we walk to school on a rainy morning I often have to scout ahead. I always venture the same arguments, that they are absolutely tiny, and we are mighty giants. But a snail never bit anybody's foot off, not even those massive tropical ones. But to use the old Oxbridge debater fallacy, you can't rationalise somebody, especially a child, out of a position they weren't rationalised into. Snails and slugs are slow, writhing anomalies in a city full of things that flutter, stomp or scuttle. They crisscross pavements with their posterior mucus. Their eyes pop in and out of their heads, and their heads are but a slight variation on the rest of their body. Like a brain that somehow managed to survive outside the skull with the eyeballs perched on top of taut optic nerves. Creeping absurdities given flesh, of course it is right to be terrified. I once watched a documentary in which two slugs wrestled while hanging from a rope of... Sorry, I've got to say this because it's David Attenborough. While hanging from a rope of mucus. According to David Attenborough, snails are hermaphroditic, but still have to swap genetic material in order to reproduce. Once they are suitably entwined, their peni unfurl from the sides of their heads and also entwine into a translucent, fan-like globe. Sorry, I forgot to do the voice again and also entwine into a translucent fan-like globe. I thought about telling this to my youngest in the hope that she would see this as, an interesting, as interesting enough for her curiosity to gazump her fear, but in the end I refrained, because it's effing diabolical. The only snail I found this morning was one that had already been stepped on, probably by one of the workmen digging up the same stretch of road to install full-fibre broadband. A crushed slug is barely recognisable as such, just a smear of slimy viscera. A snail is different though. The intricate wreckage of the shell, like a toddler had just ripped up a sheet of paper with the Fibonacci sequence written on it by a master calligrapher. The etymology of gastropod is stomach foot. Other than gloating at the slug's locomotive predicament, the gastro cannot help but bring fine dining to mind and now every five-year-old learns to their horror that the French eat snails. Stomach also gets to the heart of phobia too, that precognitive unease. Carl Sagan once replied to the notion of gut feelings with the bon mot, I try not to think with my gut, but the gut always gets in first and the mind flails in its wake. Even thoughts themselves are little to do with what we think of as our resolve and intentions. Love you, Carl, but how exactly can we try not to think with something? Snail on the road to summer's end. Crunch. So that's the uh, haiku at the end of my high boom. I like snails. I lie a lot in these poems. Um, someone shared it with um, another poet, Gary from Leeds. 
And Gary from Leeds, I didn't know. I think I'd seen. I think I had seen this, but forgotten it. Has um, really? I can't. I don't know if he just really loves snails and slugs. Well, I think, or, or, or whether he works professionally actually as a sort of doing some kind of experty type thing with snails and slugs. Hello, Gary, if you're listening. Um, but someone copied him into it, and he he did a, a tweet sort of saying, "Good read, but I love the little, you know, the little lovelies, and I love them too. I I genuinely love bugs and snails and just all all the stuff, all the all the non-human stuff in the world." Um, but my kids, who maybe it's because I grew up outside of London, with a, with a few fields at hand, not many, but a few, and the, but the kids are growing up in South London, inner city South London, and so they're they're just, I don't know, they're just they just terrified. And my wife as well of just nature, which is a shame because I've tried to socialise them into it. Um, before I talk a little bit about the film I made. The next poem I wrote, um, I'm going to read this one out. If I have time to read the others, then I'll, I'll read them out. But this one's called The Tap. Um, there was a poet called Todd Moore, and I speak about him in a few of the posts that I've made. And I'll probably mention him again because I want to write a blog about violence in poetry and how poetry often comes from a very moral space right now anyway. And we seem to inter- interpret it in a moral way. And so that, I think affects how poetry deals with violence and doesn't seem to deal with violence in the same way that films and video games can deal with violence and so I was going to write about that so I won't speak about it too much right now but hopefully it'll be left as a tantalizing possibility to return to my blog or maybe even subscribe to my substack by uh, just uh, putting your email in a little box and I swear I will not add you to any spammy lists you'll just get my two posts a week and that is all thank you very much um, so I, th- there's a poet called Todd Moore. He wrote very violent poems and he had a very spare style called killer, which he sort of referred to as his killer Zen style, where um, I think that was more in, to do with his nature, nature poems, with his shorter poems. But he would break the line very early. So he had very short lines. So literally a one or two stress line at the max and then break the line, sometimes in the middle of a word. So that. It would just be a very long poem going downwards. Very short lines, but the poem would seem to go downwards forever. He had some very short poems that probably would just be one traditional line of poetry, but they would go downwards instead. And my little theory about what worked about this kind of poetry was one that obviously anything that defamiliarises language, if we're going through the uh, structuralists right now, um, that the defamiliarisation of language is is what some 20th century literary critics spoke about what how poetry works which is the language is different enough to our everyday uses of it that it makes everything kind of new i suppose it's almost if you poetry sometimes we write poems because we look at a normal thing as if we're looking at it for the first time and i think that the um if you defamiliarize language so if you make something strange about the language then the person realizes they're not reading in a passive way and reading becomes more active and that active quality of the reading um, leads to what you're writing about to also feel kind of strange and new even if you're writing about something very familiar so that's me summarizing defamiliarization as the structuralists would have called it might have been the post-structuralists i'm not sure always getting them too mixed up i am so i didn't know i i knew i had to write something new so I started writing in this style that I knew from Todd Moore. And in this style from Todd Moore, I think the reason why it works, apart from defamiliarization, because there was another reason, is that the the lines are so short that the eye doesn't have to move along it. The eye can take on the whole line in one glance pretty quickly. And so the eye just needs to travel down the page instead. And in interviews, Todd Moore kind of always felt that at the end of a long line, so think of the lines that Allen Ginsberg wrote in How, or if you know the poet C.K. Williams, the lines were very long and they would kind of build up that energy. But in that moment when the line breaks and you have to follow it to the kind of your eye, like a typewriter sliding back, um, your glance, your gaze slides back to the edge of the page. And normally that's for, that's how the dramatic tension of line breaks are created just for reading poetry silently. It's that little gap, that little blip when the eye kind of hits the end of the line and then whoop, runs back in, you know. It's that imperceptible blip. 
But Todd Moore realised that if you just kind of went down the page, and I think this is even more so when you're writing a blog and people are just scrolling downwards, this endless kind of <laughs> endless trickle of words, um, the energy doesn't dissipate. It just continues to build up. And so there's an intensity there, which is tailor-made for Todd's violent poetry. Um, this poem perhaps it, it does have it's a little bit about tor- the cliche torture method of water torture when a tap would be dripping sometimes on people's head and I, I started writing about that for some reason because there was a tap dripping near me when I started writing and I remembered something that Alan Watts I didn't mention this in the poem but Alan Watts kind of you said that um, the thing about dripping taps is that it was a torture made for westerners because a lot of people from the east who had practiced and studied things such as meditation knew how to deal with a dripping tap but because the westerners had such easily distracted and restless minds um, the tap would drive them insane so i guess this is the things that spilled out of my head so i'll read it out now the tap the idea that a dripping tap could drive any person to insanity is a particularly western one I have dozed like a drunk rhino for many years with a tap dripping away in the corner of my cell. The guards originally intended for it to chip away at my mind as a gentle stream might sculpt the contours of a rock over centuries. But at the time of my interception as I crossed what I thought was an unmanned border, my mind was already shattered into little jags of identity that dissolved into the lurid flow of sensory experience. At first, they suspected that I might be taking refuge in the regular metre of the drip, 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 not unlike the drum of a funeral parade accompanying the dear leader's coffin. So they rigged the tap with rubber bands and twigs in such a way that the drips hit the concrete floor at irregular intervals. But I was already comfortable with the random staccato of existence, and the drip was no more a bother than my thoughts They have since given up on the regular beatings and keep me locked up, not so much as a punishment, but rather as some kind of state secret, something they don't want the other prisoners to discover, which raises the question of why they haven't blasted a slug into my cortex. Perhaps because my way of being could be of advantage to them if they were intercepted behind enemy lines. They even let me shimmy over to where the tap is dripping to open my mouth and catch each drop like a delicious doggy treat. The little explosions of chilled clarity rendering the sound of each drip into blossoming bliss. Sometimes one of the guards might ask if there is an image that I keep in my head and I say no, but I sometimes dream that I am the Buddha sat on a rock in the Christian hell. And every so often an angel appears to ask me if I am in anguish. And I would reply in a calm, rested tone. Oh yes, this is terrible. Please let him know that I am suffering greatly. That last image is something I've wanted to put in a poem for ages. So I knew that I was going to sneak out in that one. The idea of Buddha in the Christian hell just meditating. (laughs) and just being you know despite the fire and the brimstone and everything going on around him him just basically going yeah fine whatever no different i'd do the same if i was in heaven um right so now i get to talk a little bit about the film i made um so i've talked a little bit about my poetic practice and about how this really is me doing a gig this podcast is me taking my new writing from the month and reading it out in such a way as i would at a gig and I do this because I think my favourite way of performing is being given like an hour and just reading a few poems and talking a lot and giving a bit more background to the poems or just, I don't know, just improvising some patter about the themes that develop between each poem. And I enjoy that. Um, But I also expect that no promoter in London will ever give me the chance to do that in front of an audience and if I did that in front of an audience I could probably book a venue somewhere and about five people would turn up which is fine but um I mean that's quite optimistic of me thinking five people would get off their asses to watch me talk for an hour but I think that's the way to do it is to to not read if you do ever get a a gig for an hour people and it can happen I used to get booked for quite a few hour-long gigs and there are often in other countries like Berlin or um Norway or Denmark, not, not Denmark, I didn't get any hour-long gigs in Denmark, but a few places I would read for an hour, I'd get bookings where I'd read for an hour, 
And after a while, I realized in some ways I would read the same if number of poems in an hour long gig as I would during a, a half hour gig. I really wouldn't add many more poems. I would just talk more because people, if you're good at talking, at least and I think I'm pretty good at talking. You know, I know I talk too fast. Sorry if I've just, you know, I've been, it's been difficult to keep up at some points during this. Um, but you need more space between the poems. I think that's why John Cooper Clark has it nailed when he has, you know, his five minute stand up routine between the poems. Um, I think listening to nonstop poems for that amount of time can be exhausting. And it's similar when people who I used to book people who were really good at floor spots at the open mics, they were really good at these intense five minute blasts of poetry. But you give them a 20 minute gig and man, you have to, again, you have to even spread that out, you know, maybe a couple more poems than you would read in five minutes. It's weird. The longer the gig gets, the fewer poems you add to what you're reading. Um, That's the only way to do it. Anyway, I don't think anyone would do that. But sometimes a lot of poets, in order to kind of, they feel that the next step of their career is to write the one person show instead and tour that one person show. Whereas I think a lot of them, I mean, the shows can be really good, but they have to justify their hour on stage or their 45 minutes on stage with specially written you know and workshopped material when I think some people would just be really good at reading and talking for an hour and it being different every time they do it um I think some people and I think I was one of those people (laughs) would be better at that um but I don't think anyone would give me that that said every now and again I do write the equivalent of a one-person show I do it in quite an organic way and no way am I going to Edinburgh forget it Edinburgh has been I mean, I, I salute all the working class poets that have been able to take stuff to Edinburgh. I really do. And actually all the people of colour that are able to go to Edinburgh as well, because it's so damn white. Yeah. And but ultimately, taking your thing to Edinburgh and losing thousands of pounds. I'm sorry, but it's privilege. It's privilege. If you're able to get past that and do it. And I, I wanted to do it. In the end, I ended up doing a little run at the Camden Fringe. And actually, I was able to kind of because of cool people that were interested in what I did, I was able to do shows at um, the Union Chapel and places like that. And um, up in Nottingham as well, I went to just to, you know, so I had a few gigs because of that, which was great. Um, but actually, the only places I actually ended up doing the whole show was was in, was during, was in the Camden Fringe in this tiny venue with lots of noise pollution. Um, so what am I saying? I'm saying that every now and again, I organically write something that feels like a longer form piece. And so I wrote something called First Person and it was about, I originally wanted to write about the self and how really examining the first person viewpoint, I think, is a way of seeing that there isn't anybody. When you really look, there's nobody there. So I used to really convince myself that the self was there before when I really juggled with this, struggled with this a bit more because I would ask, who is seeing this? You know, I, I'm looking around right now and I have my first person point of view. Look, there is the world. There it is rendered in all this detail and colour. Therefore, someone has to be seeing this. And actually, when you really look for that person, spoiler alert, and that's how it worked for me. When you turn attention the other way towards, see, so the attention is going outwards and there's the feeling of being a person looking through eyes and seeing the world. I know this isn't something you should just randomly drop into the middle of a podcast, by the way. Sorry about that. Hope you're not driving. Um, but if you turn that attention the other way, almost from the world towards where this looking thing is meant to be, um, one of two things can happen. Oh, I might as well just say it now. One of those things might be um, that you just don't see anything. That's normally what happens for me nowadays. You realise there is nothing there. There's just attention. There's just that attention going in a different direction. And then that attention can just turn back out, look at the world without the sense of there being a person looking at it. That might be one thing that happens. But sometimes another thing is you, you turn the attention and you do get this feeling of someone or something inside your head. Yeah. And But when attention, when awareness is kind of pointing the other way, I bet I've lost all of you now. But when awareness is pointing the other way, it begs the question or raises the question, I should say. um, If that's the self, then what's looking at it? And sometimes there's the realisation that actually, yeah, that self is just a construct and you are the awareness that's looking at it. You're not this thing that's behind your ears. 
you're just this sense of awareness. This isn't me, by the way. Now I cut out a large bit of the show saying, um, you you probably still are your brain. I'm not saying anything supernatural here that you're some kind of out of the body awareness. This is literally probably how your brain and your sensory organs are creating the world and your sense of awareness within it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a little thing that's trapped inside your head looking out. So that was the aim. <laughs> I've just done it now, haven't I? Typical. That was the aim of it. But I ended up focusing more. I think one, because I ended up cutting out a lot of stuff from this monologue. And secondly, I ended up focusing more on that sense of self, that sense of being the centre of the world. And it actually became more about main character syndrome, thinking you're the, the centre of existence. But the tension between that feeling that you're the centre of existence and then the evidence from how the outside world treats you but you're obviously not the centre of existence and how there's a tension between these two. And I wrote more about that tension. You can see why I didn't get a lot of hits on the video, can't you, already? Well, just to make it even worse, I decided that the way, rather than take, make this a show, rather than make this some kind of thing where it's me speaking to a camera because I can't be bothered to memorise all that stuff anymore, um, I made, I thought, wouldn't it be good if I used a kind of a collage and assemblage of first-person video game footage to illustrate this point instead? And that's what I did. And so I, I used first-person video game footage from a lot of video games such as um, Grand Theft Auto V, Watch Dogs Legion, Skyrim. There's a really cool Matrix demo that's not available anymore, but you could download it for a little while. And it's a demo of the Unreal Engine 5. And that's quite good in its first-person sort of mode, but it's quite floaty, which actually ended up being good for this video. Um, so my critical points, I'd make a number of critical points. It's very amateurish. My editing skills aren't great. And um, I think it sounds okay, but there's even a bit of audio jank in it. But I think the biggest thing I can look at, if I'm, I'm beginning to get my objective picture of it, um, I also, by the way, recreated a gallery in... Um, so I, I, I also created a first-person view of a gallery myself in a game engine called... Um, I've forgotten the name of it. Unity. And... Unity is something that anyone can download and make little games in. So I made a little first-person game environment from Unity, which is a gallery, but it's really janky. When something is janky in video game language, but it can be used in other ways, it's when it moves about very awkwardly. It's, you know, it kind of feels like it's it, there's nothing. It's not very smooth. And I think probably if you watched a video, the most off-putting thing about it when I look at it now is the jank for kind of movement and it'll probably make people I don't know, maybe it makes people feel a bit ill so I almost feel like saying if you're going to watch it and it's there in the sub stack I've embedded it then you might want to um pay less attention to the there's some really good moments in the visuals that I'm actually quite proud of there's a few little cuts I do where I think ah I did something clever there but um maybe you don't have to kind of pay so much attention to the video maybe you can just listen to it and passively gaze at the video and if you feel the jankiness is just a bit too much then you can look away and just trust what i'm saying or just keep an eye on what's happening in the you know from the corner of your eye um i won't say much more about it i think um it was an experiment most experiments fail i think there's stuff of value within it i think it's worth a watch but i'm not expecting it to become like the the biggest my my viral video moment you don't make stuff like that to get a viral video moment. You don't basically make something that's trying to like look at the weird feeling of main character syndrome or being the centre of things, while at the same time slyly trying to make you lose your self of sense of self, which I do on at least two occasions. I kind of do two little guided meditations, but I don't say they're guided meditations. I'm literally trying to dupe the uh, the viewer and listener into awakening basically it's very arrogant of me i know um and um yeah but it but honestly i think i had to make it because a lot of the stuff that i do make and right now comes from a perspective of no self or the self if you're more hindu inclined but it's the self in big letters and i'm not being mr i'm enlightened come and see my students i'm just come and see my come and be my student i'm saying I see the world in a very different way now than I used to. And I see my own existence and everything in a very different way than I used to. And it's made me less of an anxious or neurotic person. That's all I'll say. There might be something in it for you. I don't know. Um, I'm really trying not to go down that particular road of 
positing myself as any kind of guru i'm just an artist and i make stuff and some of the way i make stuff is influenced by the ways in which i currently see the world that's all i'm gonna say right so yeah it's called first person it's on my youtube channel youtube.com forward slash n-i-a-l-l-o-s-u-l-l-i-v-a-n that's the same little same end bit as my Substack email address as well uh, for rusty nile so feel free to watch it but there's a link to it there's a post called i made a video and there's a link to it there let's get back into reading some posts now i've spoke on my last that was my last ditch attempt at promoting that video um <laughs> which um which which no one's gonna no one's gonna listen to this so i don't know anyway okay um i think i have to cull what i'm gonna read now because i think i've got about maybe about 10 more minutes i don't know I shouldn't make this run for over an hour because that's just weird. Um, okay, so I wrote a few more poems. Um, let's read these out. So that it's called Two Hopeful Poems and they're written in that Killer's End style again. And I think they're self, self-explanatory so I'm just going to read them out. People, I love how they forget where they are for a moment or how they quickly anger over sod all, or veer between tears and maniacal laughter as the nerves prang in the thunder of neurotransmitters and hormones crash within their papery skins. I love them, for the blamelessness of their humanity. Even the gammon, who was filmed sipping a cocktail in a bin filled with water on the hottest day on record, had forgotten he was a gammon for a moment, and that is when we are at our best, in the moments we forget who we are. And you may ask how I feel about people when they go online, and I will answer, people don't go online. For what we meet online is not people but their thoughts. The people are sat in a creaky office chair, or thumbing their screen while sat on a bus, or scratching their arse in bed while ruminating on how Mark handles inflation. They are not their thoughts and their thoughts are not theirs. They are orphaned of their pasts and futures as they graze on the now with no meaningful means of stomaching it. And the next one's called AC. Um, alternative current, you know, alternating current in electronics when the, uh, because it's a poem about kind of things switching from one way to the other. Okay. And it's from what I just said about kind of awareness going one way and another way, it's just a little bit of advice to writers which is if you're trying to write and you feel that nothing is coming out maybe you're not letting enough in and some of the greatest artists are the ones who are completely open to the world um not promising i'll ever be a great artist and i don't think i am and i'm not saying you might be a great artist but maybe if you really want that feeling of flow when you get open you know when you have a blank page and you start filling it with something then if nothing is coming maybe if nothing's coming out Maybe you've got to let more in. And Gary Snyder, as I say in his poem, spoke about a mind like compost. Um, where if I remember right, the, 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 the first lines are, the new stuff goes on top, turn it over, turn it over. Because he says knowledge is useless when it's green. It has to be turned over a few times and then it's useful. Okay. And it's interesting because, you know, he's an ex-Zen monk. But, you know, he thinks that, you know, he knows that thinking at the same time isn't a bad thing. And I think a lot of people from the mindless mindfulness community really misinterpretive misinterpret meditative practice and other things and think that thought is a bad thing it isn't it's to be aware of them that's all okay ac you can't allow the floodgates to flow one way without letting the deluge surge the other way enough of the internal gatekeeping the mind will make itself up at a later moment so for now drink it all in Gary Snyder once said it was like compost. You put the new stuff on top and turn it over. To lose control over that which flops out of the cortical void and onto a page, you have to likewise surrender control over all the stuff that gets in. And then I write a few paragraphs about it. And then um, in the earlier poem, I mentioned the gammon in a bin. So there's like this guy, English, typical, when I say ga- gammon, I mean a particular kind of Englishman um, who's probably of a right-wing persuasion. And um, people call them gammon because when they appear on Question Time and they get really angry about stuff like Jeremy Corbyn not wanting to launch nuclear bombs, um, they get quite red in the face and they look a bit like a ham. So I did a very quick pixel art. Every now and again, if I've not got an image to use, I sometimes just do a very quick piece of pixel art. And I'm a terrible pixel artist. 
And these pixel arts are definitely sketches. I mean, pixel art is normally very intricate. You have to think about every single pixel and you will not get that impression from my pixel art because I, I create them in a hurry. But anyway, if you were wondering about the pixel art, that's why there's pixel art in my posts. Um, two more things. So Cyberpunk Edge Runners, I wrote a... Um, and it's really interesting that the, the idea of main character syndrome seems to be following through the ideas here. But I wrote about the anime Cyberpunk Edge Runners, And I also wrote about Anthony DeMello, who's a Jesuit priest who, who again, was into this non-dual, no-self stuff. And Anthony DeMello is an interesting guy. Um, but if you want to explore Anthony DeMello, um, in a footnote, I give I recommend a few texts because um, there has been some unforgivable meddling with him by whoever is posted, whoever is publishing his posthumous stuff. There's one book in particular um, because there's definitely a big self-help repackaging of him. And I think he's a lot more radical than that. Um, and one of his books is called one of the posthumous books is called Stop Fixing Yourself. And it's got a passage where he is talking about checking your phone and email and stuff like that. When he's talking about distractions, he died in 1987. So, as I say in this postscript, he either had incredible foresight or there is some um, editorial vandalism of a most heinous degree coming from the foundation being so keen to turn him into a self-help guru. Moving on from that, I wrote about the anime Cyberpunk Edge Runners and basically about how the interesting I find really interesting about Cyberpunk Edge Runners, based on the video game Cyberpunk 2077, is that the main character David, he doesn't really he kind of does have a narrative arc, but what characterizes him is that his dreams are he doesn't have his own dreams. He seems to, and it's explicitly said at one point, he's always chasing the dreams of others. And in many ways, that's his power by the end of the series. I won't say anything more than that. I'm going to finish by reading the thing that I wrote yesterday. Tiara's ta ta ta. So I'll end on a ta ta. Um, so here it is. And this is a series of, uh, this is like a reverse high boon. So there's a haiku at the very beginning, followed by some prose poetry. Okay. Cannons fire in the royal parks. Approaching autumn. I watched the funeral of the wife and kids because it was history after all and I wanted them to forge some kind of memory of the moment. Just so, when asked what they were doing during the Queen's funeral, they could say, playing Splatoon 3. I can't say that there was much about the pageantry or banal accompanying commentary that moved me. There were a few points where I pointed and said, I used to live there, but that was about it. There was an undeniable melancholy that crept in when the coffin lowered, enough for me to feel aggrieved when they cut to the piper. I get it. There was definitely some artistry in the image of a lone retreating figure. But I wanted to see that coffin vanish into darkness. I wanted that hole in the cathedral floor to swallow the coffin, the flags, the black hats, the hymn sheets, the whole shallow gene pool, the duchies, the sycophants and rubberneckers, the whole sorry parade, just like the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. A few weeks later, some workmen carved all the old tarmac from the main road on our route to school and rolled out a new stretch of tar. There was a beauty to it, like someone had dragged the flat side of a landscaping rake across a cooling stream of lava. It felt sticky and warm as I crossed it with my kids. Even the reliably pleasant smell of hot tar couldn't ruin it. They then painted the necessary white and yellow lines and it was a road again. I wanted to take a photo, but I thought I might come across as someone that wanted to complain to the council. Explaining that I found it beautiful might have mortified my kids. So please enjoy this picture I just took of some horses on a housing estate instead. I took a picture that morning of some horses on a housing estate. Um, uh, yeah, I wish I had taken a picture of Vitara across the road. It looked gorgeous. It did. It looked lovely. There's something strangely beautiful about it. And... Um, yeah, and I just needed an image and I, I couldn't be bothered to do some pixel art. Okay. I saw the new coins on the news this morning with Charles's head pointing in the opposite direction to his mother. You could make two coins look like they're chatting to each other or swap them over and pretend they've just fallen out. I could also just imagine the whole nation saying, the money looks wrong in unison. Stare at the new coins for long enough and all you see is that single ear pointing right at you. 
I know that every coin has featured a profile portrait for centuries, but this coin really seemed like one that I could whisper into. They say that the monarch functions as a symbol rather than a person, but I'd rather place my constitutional faith in a massive ear. It could be grown in a lab from a royal stem cell if the lineage is so important. We could line up for days to whisper into it, whatever we liked, and know that our secrets would be safe. They could carry the ear into Parliament on a raised platform every year. It would be the people's ear, but also an ear that is better than all of us. An ear that the red arrows could fly over. God save the ear. I can't help but remember that Benjamin Franklin quote, Nothing is certain except death and taxes, and how it describes the current news cycle. I might have posted something witty about it if I hadn't managed to remain logged out of a hellish bird site for a week. You may think that I have been touching grass and smelling flowers, but as seen above, I've just been swooning over tarmac instead. My trick was to change the password to the, to the strong auto-suggestion, not save it, and then log out. I might still return in a few months for the sole purpose of nuking my account. Nothing makes more of a waste of a soul than a yearning for clout, especially when we do it under the impression that we are doing something good. It makes monsters of the best of us. That's the last piece. Yeah, as I said, I won't make too much of it. I'm logged out of Twitter. I'm going to remain logged out of Twitter. I know that makes me kind of hard to get hold of all the people whose emails I don't answer. But um, maybe I'm just going to remain a hard person to get hold of and deal with the consequences of that. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's nice. It's been nice. I've been logged out for over a week now and I want to stay logged out. Um yeah, let's just finish by trashing Twitter for the last time so I don't have to bang on about it. Um, Twitter makes me miserable, especially when I get clout on Twitter. Um, it's weird to... I mean, part of it was probably me having a sulk, the fact that I'd spent months making this video. And I get why people wouldn't want to watch the video or wouldn't continue to watch the video after like two minutes. I do get it. I do get it. I think I always create these things which I realise are harder work than I originally intended them to be. Um, but I remember writing a few write-on things and then these write-on things getting lots of traction and lots of likes and retweets. But this thing that I'd worked on for months and shared got no traction at all. And I was resentful of that um, and a bit bitter about that, even though that's just the nature of Twitter. That's how it works. Um I recognise that there are people that exist on Twitter who just share viewpoints and they get loads of clout from that and they get loads of followers and they just tell people things they already think and there's this potential sense of outrage, I guess, that sustains it. And these people sometimes end up being invited on the news and stuff like that. I know some of these people just on the basis of being quite popular on Twitter and... Um, you know, like a social media commentator. And then once you've been on the news once, they'll just keep inviting you back because that's how those organisations work. They'll always bring in someone that they know. And other people, again, people who just write political things or just opinionated things, some of them even have like the Ko-Fi link, you know, and they're asking people to pay them for their views. And I feel conflicted about that in the sense that why not? If you're creating content and people like that content, why not ask for money for it? Why not have a little tipping cup? I, th I think it's fine. I think it's actually fine. I think I, w I wish there was more ways of doing that. Like, like I think Jared Lanier, Lanier, Jaron Lanier, that's the guy who's, who tells you to delete your social media. But he kind of sees a society in which we can all get paid and pay each other for these little things that we put online um, rather than having just simply advertising do it. Um, but for me, I thought that's just kind of a miserable existence to have. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Honestly, I wouldn't. There's no happiness in it. There's none. No one gets happy from that. You just end up hooked to this sense of outrage. Um, and as evidence in my poems, I try to look beyond people's opinions. I know opinions are a lot of what makes a person. But sometimes when I'm just seeing people at the supermarket and stuff like that, or just like letting them pass down a thin path and sharing a smile i know this sounds kind of silly and schmaltzy but i'm more into that i'm more into these little human connections that i have every day and i'm an introvert but i like people and 
Twitter just kind of more and more says that people are their opinions and their thoughts. And I think we're more than our opinions and our thoughts. So, um, yeah, but just the whole clout thing is stupid. And actually, I'd rather feel happier with the five people who watch something. I've got this eternally optimistic figure of five. But with the handful of people that engage with the things that I create, I'm a lot happier than that. And the comparison of cheap political points I made with the things that I genuinely spent time on and put love into and how one was more popular than the other, it was only that comparison that was making me unhappy with the response to the work that I was creating. Whereas now that I'm kind of off Twitter and probably off social media as well, I'm a lot happier when a handful of people like the thing that I made. So, um, yeah, I think things are going to stay that way, even if I'm just throwing work out to a handful of people. Um, that's all I'm going to say. So I've kind of gone full circle, really, haven't I, about my creative practice and stuff like that. Thank you for listening. If you did listen, um, feel free to subscribe to the Substack. Have a good month. I might see you, you know, in my comments. Feel free to like and share stuff as well. That's, if, if I'm going to ask for anything in return, please like and share. I know sometimes it takes a lot. Like sometimes I enjoy stuff, but I feel weird about sharing my enjoyment of it. I'm also asking you to do for work on social media that I'm not going to do for myself. I re- I realise that's there as well. Even if you just tell someone about it, like it's a little secret. Like, you know what? No, 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 you know, everyone thinks he's a bit of a knob. Yeah, he's a bit of a knob, but you know, his, his blog's quite good. I mean, I'm glad I don't have to like deal with him in a day to day anymore. But you know, the blog's all right. You know, he's 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 not bad at writing, is he? He's not bad. He can be quite entertaining. But God, when you're in the same room as him, especially when he's had a few drinks, Jesus Christ. Anyway. I really have to go now so um, because I genuinely am probably turning into the person that people try avoiding. Thank you so much for listening if you've listened this far. Thank you so much for reading if you read and thank you so much for sharing if you have shared. Have a good one. Oh, and you know what? I shouted out Paul Cree last time but I want to end this by shouting out Paul Cree again. He's writing some amazing and I've not written this in his comments yet so I hope he hears this but I'll probably get around to commenting. But his Gatwick Orbital stories are fantastic. They're amazing. They're bringing back the shame I felt <laughs> of being a young person and just all the intense feelings I had when living in an orbital town myself. So it's great stuff, Paul. And anyone, Paul Cree's Substack is called Lager Time and it's one of my two recommended, I think Eugene K and Lager Time are my two recommendeds at the moment. So you can follow that from my Substack or just look up Lager Time Paul Cree. It's great stuff, honestly. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. Bye bye.